Welcome back to another episode of the Religious Studies Project. My name is Christopher Carter, and I'm joined this week, as every week, by David Robertson. And we are, like every week, presented in association with the BASR. Yeah, who are awesome. And they've got a pretty good website here as well. It's basr.ac.uk. You should really check it out. Indeed, there's lots of material there, including links to excellent sites such as the Religious Studies Project. Synchronicity. (laughs) It's fantastic. Uh, You'd almost think that um, we were implicated quite strongly in the BASR. Um, So this week is another conversation um, that David's been having um, and at the IAHR, the International Association for the History of Religions conference that was back in August. this is with Susan Palmer on New Religious Movements in the Law. Yeah, you know, the brilliant case studies um, for that interaction between religion and the law, whatever these things may be. So. Indeed, yes. Susan Palmer is another scholar I'd always wanted to speak to, and I got the opportunity to do so at IAHR, and I'll uh, say a little bit more after the interview, but for now I'll pass over to myself in Erfurt. Hopefully, if you've been listening to the Religious Studies Project for a while, you will not be using terms like cults. But uh, nonetheless, outside of academia, the terminology of cults and new religious movements uh, continues to be problematic. And um, in terms of their relationship with the law, sometimes has real impact on on the lives of, of, of real people. To talk about this kind of uh, the intersection between new religious movements and the law, I'm joined today by Susan J. Palmer, who is a researcher at McGill University and an affiliate professor at Concordia University in Montreal. So, first and foremost, thanks for uh, joining us at the Religious Studies well, Project thank you today. Thank for inviting me, David. Uh, my great pleasure. There's a lot of, uh, over your series of books, there's a lot of different data we can draw on, but let's start by asking about your journey, how you came to be studying this intersection of new religions and the law? Aha. Uh-huh. Well, I first um, started studying religion, new religions sort of by accident. I was, I guess you could call me a hippie, and I was interested in meditation and becoming enlightened. And so I, used, I tried different meditation techniques, and I was with the Shivananda Yoga people. But I found it very difficult to concentrate when I was meditating, so I, I started watching people around me and, and analyzing them in sociological terms and watching how they change the ritual, you know, power struggles and so on. So, so were, you, were um, you already an academic by this point? Were you? Well, I was sort of doing sociology without knowing it because I couldn't concentrate on meditating. <laughs> so then I got um, a, a really good opportunity. Uh, I was doing my master's in religion at Concordia University and... My advisor, Fred Bird, invited me to be on a research project where we actually got paid to, um, well, to visit and write about new religions in the area. Mm-hmm. So I chose a very strange one. It was actually a Gurdjieff uh, sort of schismatic group. Um, and my initial interest in new religions was just because they were weird and entertaining and strange and fun. And I was sympathetic with people's you know, seeking for higher states of consciousness. Um, and, but then as I studied them, as I hung out with them more and more, I realized how, how badly treated they, they are by society and how deeply misunderstood mm-hmm. and how, especially journalists, 
that have no interest in really finding out who they are, what's going on. But, and especially this, this sort of cult stereotype. Um, so I got more and more interested in, I guess, legal issues and, and how, you know, the public management of religion, those kind of questions. And, and different, I got dragged into various court cases, particularly when I, I got a grant from the federal government to study children in new religions. And so the groups were sort of saying, come and study us. And I realized they wanted a sympathetic, you know, mm. witness because they were going through custody battles and so on. So that's sort of how I got drawn into this area. Mm. The There's an interesting kind of uh, question about the role of the academic there. You know, um, I, I've done some work on... Uh, similar sort of situations and and you do get uh you can become their sort of pet academic right they they sort of want a sympathetic ear as you've said and um but that's only you know one job that an academic can do at the same time we have this sort of duty to be objectively analyzing but then sometimes as well we're also um this kind of the kind of work that you're doing actually is is as much about questioning the the academic categories that we're using, right? Mm, yes, sometimes. Um, that's a very good point you brought up, the, you know, trying to maintain your objectivity. Mm. And Tom Robbins had a good uh, expression. He, he called it creeping philomanderism. <laughs> you know, when the Moonies or the Scientologists are overly eager to be studied. Right. And, and I do find that, I deal with that all the time. But, and actually it's very difficult when, you, when you're doing field research on a group and you're getting to know the people to, to sort of tread that line, you know, that balance where you're not, you know, you, do, you won't be, you're trying not to become their advocate or their, um, mm-hmm. I mean... Like a mouthpiece or yeah. a, a defender, I guess, yeah. yeah. Yeah, in the field, we, we talk about worldview translator, you know, mm-hmm. or worldview translators. Um, and of course, you know, often you come across things in the group that are, you know, negative or less pleasant than you expected. But the point is to try to not judge and, and just, you know, keep a sort of anthropological stance. And this is human culture. And... Um, Try not to react. Try not to react emotionally. But it affects your data, right? Doesn't it? You you know when when you you're working with a group who are happier with academia or happier with scholars who actually kind of want the attention, that means you're not getting the you're well, not getting the clear data, are you? Well, no, this is what various anti-cultists said, and actually I was accused of this sort of thing. How. You know, I would just flit in and I'd be shown into the front parlor and fed right. the best, yeah, yeah. most delicious, you know, cakes and things. And then i go and write a glowing report. Well, it's not quite <laughs> like that. Um, you expect, you know, the group will be on their best behavior and show their most positive side. But if you hang around long enough, you know, the cracks will show you yeah. arguments in the kitchen. You'll hear someone complaining. Um, you'll, you'll get a, a sense of what's really going on. And, you know, because they're, they're human, you know, they're... Of course, ordinary yeah. people. I mean, when I'm 
when I invite people to my house for dinner, I don't want them to look at, under my bed, you know. <laughs> so, um, no, I think you have to go through the, the PR phase with the group and just hang in there, and then eventually you start finding, you know, there's, there's some depth to the research. What was, uh, what was the first group that you... Was, was it the Gurdjieff group that you that has kind of led into it? How did that lead on then to the Raelian work where you were talking about UFO kind of uh, religions? Well, the Gurdjieff group, I just chose that to do my, for my MA thesis. And they weren't really a Gurdjieff group. In fact, they've been called Gurdjieff Pretenders by the oh, Gurdjieff right. Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the founder, E.J. Gold, you know, used Gurdjieff's ideas as an inspiration. Well, I started teaching a course called Cults, and which was very popular. With yeah, yeah. it's very timely, that isn't it? <laughs> and um, and I would have to, of course, talk about the cult word, the four-letter word. Um, and then I started inviting people to my classes, and I encountered the Raelians at a psychic fair, and I've, I'd always wanted to study a UFO religion, so I I invited them to my class, and I took my students to their meetings. And they were a really good um, group to study because they're very, very open. They loved, mm. you know, they're, they're sort of, they see themselves as scientists. You know, they yeah, say science right, yeah, is our religion. Yeah. So if you say, I want to do scientific research, they love it, you know. So I would take my students there and we would do interviews and, and um, you know, we would do questionnaires and statistics and things. So I ended up writing a book about them. And um, that was really fun. And then I was very interested in this group, the Nawabians. Yeah. So I wrote a book about them, and I used to bump into them when I, when I went to New York, and also sometimes in Toronto. And they're very intriguing because they're usually these, these tall black guys who, when I first saw them, I thought they were from the Sudan because they sort of looked like you know they're in desert white robes. Mm-hmm. But then I realized that they were definitely a quote cult <laughs> mm. when I read their literature because it talked about UFOs and, and all sorts of strange things. And I was fascinated how they changed so rapidly. They changed their style of dress, their belief system. <clears throat> they suddenly transformed into Jews. Yeah. And then they were, you know, they were like indigenous peoples. Um, so... They, they, they behave differently than any other group I'd met, so I decided to try to study them. And there was a big challenge, too, because I would go to these meetings and I'd be the only white person in darkest Brooklyn, and the leader would be saying, what? People don't have no soul, and she'd stare right at me, <laughs> and I'd just write it down in my notebook. I think being female or being an academic made you, like, you were other, but you were more other? Yeah, I think... Did it give you a bit of cachet, you know? I think being female helped, because they didn't see me as threatening. And they basically saw me as just funny, like they, they used to right. joke about me all the time, you know? Because yeah. they just thought it was an anomaly, me being there, so it was, I was sort of a standing joke, you know? And then when I stopped studying them, and I went back, they said, where have you been? Why aren't you studying us anymore? Yeah. I I, I find the New Albions fascinating as well. I, I mean, I, I know them from your book, not... I haven't bumped into anybody in New York, but um, I was immediately drawn to the Egyptian royal space kind of 
mythology that reminded me of people like, you know, obviously kind of Sun Ra and these kind of yeah. people, but to a lesser degree, kind of other hip-hop stuff that I'd come across, you know, like the Wu-Tang Clan and stuff, sometimes yeah. make kind of uh, um, reference to that kind of world. And it's almost like you've got your... We've got a familiar new religious movements, and then this was something else completely. For you, do they trouble the kind of boundary between new religious movements and, and indigenous, you know, this kind of indigenous spirituality? We don't tend to, for instance, think about uh, Condomblé or something like that as being a new religious movement, yet it's similarly a mixture of these kind of African elements, new religious elements, and, and Christian elements. Mm-hmm. Or do you see them as coming from somewhere completely different? You know... Their, their leader is strikingly original, and I'm still not sure what his motivation is. I think it's it's just a new way. Part of it is to find a market in the black cultic milieu, so they'll transform from looking like, um, you know, Moors, mm-hmm. Moorish Science Temple, and then they'll transform into looking like, like Amerindians, you know, who... Or then they'll transform into something else, or Freemasons. Yeah. So it's partly that, but it's also partly the idea of, of the the journey and distancing yourself from this very boring kind of American racist, you know, kind of stereotype of right. being like a black man in America. Yeah, so it's yeah. kind of distancing from that. And um, the other thing is he's he's really an artist because I at first I tended to see all this stuff as kind of hokey and like made up, you know, mm-hmm. concocted. Mm-hmm. But then I went on the pilgrimage to Tamaray and we had to walk around this pyramid and then climb up these stairs and these priests dressed, you know, dressed like Egyptian pharaohs were running around speaking in well, supposedly ancient, you know, Egyptian. Mm-hmm. But there was something about the ritual that was very impressive. Right. And I, I felt very, like I was in the middle of something really powerful and authentic, even though obviously it was made up, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I realized how, how the attraction of the group and why people join, because it really, it takes you to another world. Mm-hmm. And I was just there thinking, sort of, I was all upset about my new sandals I'd bought and how they'd be ruined because it was raining. And then I got swept up in this really powerful ritual and I realized that, you know, they found something really authentic. Right. And then, of course, they got swept up in a a legal scandal, right? Uh, Yes, um, the FBI came in and trashed their place. Yeah. They hit the leader with Rico, so they had the pretext of taking all their property, which is completely unfair because it was all these people who invested their life savings and work into this, you know, this Egyptian city. It's very depressing. The allegations, much as the allegations did at Waco, at least for the legal arguments revolved around essentially, you know, uh, children being abused. Um, yeah, well, at Waco, that was just one thing they used against Koresh. Of course, the main thing was the weapons. That was the main right. uh, issue. In the case of the Nawabians... Um, I tend to get suspicious when, quote, cult leaders are accused of being pedophiles if it's if it follows a whole series of allegations. Mm-hmm. So the leader had already annoyed the local authorities right. in many different ways, and there had been many efforts to try to quell him. And he missed a hearing, his court hearing. And, he, um, and it's hard to know 
the whole thing about um, well, he definitely was a polygamist. And he had fi- mm-hmm. at least fifty wives, and whether they were underage or not wasn't clearly established because it wasn't clear like at what point he you know became involved with them, mm-hmm. and um, and the the evidence there was a lot of co- contradictory evidence, and mm-hmm. also the witnesses changed their story several times. So um, I talked to the lawyer who was defending Dr. York, and he, he, he definitely said because they're, well, he didn't say this word, but because they're seen as a cult or a weird religion, and they don't belong here, people wanted to get rid of them. So they were kind of, you know, they're at a disadvantage mm. in, in the courts. What puzzles me is which way the system works, right? Or... Are these behaviours that cults and are, are always behaving in? Or is it the other way around, which I suspect, that the, we are accusing uh, these uh, you know, uh, marginal and unusual people of, of the same set of, of uh, behaviours, right? So is, is this a traditional kind of um, strategy of othering that we've applied? I mean, you could, you could make comparisons to you know, witches or communists or all sorts of other case studies. Um, that we're now applying to these new religions, mm-hmm. and yeah, so I've got follow up. But yeah. that's a question I ask myself too. I mean, is there something about a new religion when it's, you know, when it's forming and it's growing quickly and changing quickly, and the leader has so much power, and they're experimenting like crazy to to you know establish the perfect mm-hmm. society? So this is sometimes an environment in which. You know, abuses of power can definitely happen, and you know, crimes can happen. Right, it certainly, it certainly has, their, but it can't always yeah. be the same. Right, no, yeah. no. So, on one hand, I'd say there is there there is something about some types of new religions, say particularly the millenarian messianic communal type. You know, mm-hmm. um, where sometimes there are these conditions where where there will be you know abuses of power and so on and violence and but then you can find examples like the shakers which were which are millenary and communal etc but basically peaceful people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on the other hand it, it is true that society tends to um, you know Roy Wallace had a good model for that he talked about deviant ampli- amplification mm-hmm. like when, when the police come in and raid a group it's not necessarily because the group is doing bad things, as the news reports would have us believe, mm-hmm. but they, they're they suspecting them of doing bad things because they're a, quote, cult, because right. they're a strange yeah. religion. Yeah. And they're looking, and then often they don't find anything, and the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. I've, I've just finished this book with Stuart Wright. Um, we co-authored a book called Storming Zion, Government Raids on Religions, Oxford. And it came about because, you know, we'd both been doing a lot of field research and we'd meet each other at conferences and and many of the groups we'd studied had experienced government raids. Right, I mean, yeah. he, he studied Waco, of course, which mm-hmm. has a disastrous raid by the ATF and then the FBI came in. And, of course, the Nuwabians were raided and the 12 tribes and... Scientology and many of the groups I'd studied 
had experienced government raids, and the family too. Mm -hmm. So we had this idea of, of writing a book on this topic. And uh, it's been a four-year project at least. I got a government grant from Canadian Federal Grant to do this research. And so finally we finished it. And we've been collecting raids from all over the world. Mm -hmm. And so we have sort of a big list of raids. And, and our focus in the book is to look at how raids come about and, and about the kind of groups which network and put pressure on the governments to do something about this, you know, threatening mm. uh, new religion and, and how it's like a way to control unconventional religions and cultures. Um, one of the examples that you use, I'd, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about because it's so very different, and uh, it's the case of Scientology in France. Um, we tend to think of France as this incredibly secular country, and you know that secularity is is written into their constitution to a greater degree than anywhere else I can think of off the top of my head. Yet there is this when you, you know the the anti-cult movement is uh, stronger and more fierce than anywhere else, right? So, I mean, Scientology is a very good example. Could you tell us yes. a little bit about that? Well, I found this very puzzling when I went to France and I was visiting new religions, that on one hand, France is such a civilized country with such an enlightened constitution, you know, liberty, equality, etc. Um, they're so rational. The Catholic Church is very much respected and present. And yet, they were... In the mid-90s, there was some serious cult bashing going on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, laws being passed and government reports coming out that were obviously very, very discriminatory. And um, so it was a real paradox, like, why? How could this happen? So I got a government grant, a Canadian grant, to study it. My book, The New Heretics of France, came out three years ago. And... And actually, James Beckford understands it better than any, anyone, I think. I, I borrowed a lot of his sound bites in my <laughs> book. And it's partly, you partly have to look at the history of, of you know, well, after the French Revolution, the, the war against religion and the power of religion. Yeah. And the power of religion to control institutions. And, and eventually there was a very uneasy kind of detente or delicate relationship between the state and religion. Mm -hmm. But then when cults come in, I mean, religion by that time is very tame and powerless. But then these new religions come in, especially the ones from the U.S., you know, like the mega churches where mm -hmm. people have to give money for services. And they're wildly irrational. And they have, like, magical healing in a, in a, in a country where you have excellent socialized medicine. Mm -hmm. So all these things are very disturbing. And of course there's the French, I guess, nationalism or, or pride. Right. And so they don't like French citizens turning to these weird, you know, right. foreign religions. And um, I think all those things are going on. And also there's just an idea that religion is, there's a fear of what's irrational. Yes, yes, very much so. And um, they have this word in French. Obscurantism, obscurantism, mm -hmm. and so it's a fear of, of, well, the irrational, that which you cannot, 
which is non-empirical. Yeah. So. yeah. But I always suspect, though, underneath these critiques, though, the um, even though you've got this supposedly strict separation of church and state, the the idea that there can be wrong religion kind of suggests that there's an idea of what right religion is, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a kind of undercurrent mm-hmm. that's there all the time. I mean, if, if it's all nonsense, why be so angry about it? Yeah, absolutely, this is true. Well, if the idea is that when French people embrace irrational worldviews, you're actually damaging their brains or their minds, undermining their mental yeah, health. Yeah, yeah. And we see that all, all the time in, in conversations about cults and, and, and other things. I mean, my work on conspiracy theories is exactly the same, um, the same pattern of language. It's that we're talking about beliefs, right? We're, and I'm doing the, the rabbit quotes for the listeners who can't see us. Um, that we're talking about, essentially the question is, why do people do these weird things? That's you know, It's, it's where you started, it's, it's, but it's still the question that underlies. Because... You know, it's interesting to us as scholars, but we never do that question when we're talking about Christianity, right? There's yeah, nothing from a philosophical point exactly. of view, or or Islam, for instance. There's nothing philosophically more um, irrational about Christian beliefs than there is about the Nuabians yes, exactly. or, or Scientologists. We're just far more used to them. Yes. And there's this power thing that says we can't talk about those religions in yes. the same way, right? Yes. But minority religions, we can. Yes, yeah. well, the, the media always sneers at their, their belief. They'll say, this leader was arrested for, uh, a, he says, allegedly molesting you know, children. Right, yeah. And then he believes in, and then they'll give the most distorted and ridiculous version of his, of his most far-out yeah. beliefs, and like, they'll put the two together. And I remember I saw the film Quo Vadis, you know, this Roman film about when Christians. Mm-hmm. Christians. Yeah. And I remember this scene where somebody's saying, who are the Christians? Oh, they worship a dead carpenter, and I—that kind of shocked me. Like, oh, a dead carpenter—is that mm. what we Christians do? And so it's like that, um, as you said. Any—I mean, religion is intrinsically irrational. And the other thing is, I don't understand why people get so upset. It's so difficult for people, for my friends and my family, to understand <laughs> how. It's, 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 it's wonderful when people make up a whole worldview and a belief system and, you know, organize their lives around it and it gives meaning to their lives. And for them, they're, they're being duped because it's not, quote, real or realistic. Mm-hmm. But you could say the same about someone who spends their life playing blues music or, or an artist who spends their life, you know, right. doing abstract art or something. I mean, it's, it's a work of the imagination, and so I respect them just as artists who are building something creative. You know? that's, a, that's a nice way to put it. I mean, I, I feel the same when you know, I've, I've done a lot of work on David Icke, for instance, and people just say, you know, why are you wasting your time with this guy? Like, <laughs> you know, as I've already said, I don't find it intrinsically more irrational, just it's just more novel. But nonetheless, the, the complexity of his ideas is fascinating, is the same way that you know, early Christianity is, yes. which I've also done work on. Um, in the case of Scientology, we're talking about an import of American ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and France in particular, they are very careful about foreign ideas coming in, right? Even the way that they organise their language and stuff is really unusually strict. Um, and then we have the Nuabians, for instance, 
and and uh, it's a black culture, you know, a, a self self-proclaimery. What's the, what's the black word? Black pride. Yeah, they, you know, they yeah. they are emphasizing their black identity and yeah. and the uniqueness of black identity. Um, so what? degree is the conflict they have with organs of the state, you know, law, simply just racism or xenophobia, um, you know, how much is that a part? Is, is, it, is the other that we're seeing here, um, is it an ethnic other or is, is it much more complicated than that? Well, you're right, a lot, a lot of the um, conflict certainly in France and I guess parts of Europe is... is I remember Eileen Barker told this funny story about how her landlady in Poland said, how can you study the Moonies? They're not even Christians. And Eileen said, well, wait a minute, you're an atheist, aren't you? And she said, yes, but I'm a Christian atheist. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, that sums it up. You know? <laughs> that's exactly the point, isn't it? Yeah. I, don't mind, I don't mind the other, as long as it's another I can recognise. <laughs> well, I think people... I think that's what's great in being in sociology of religion or anthropology. You're always, it's like, it's a kind of mental yoga where you're always stretching your tolerance for um, alien faiths and unusual social arrangements, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm constantly rethinking, oh, well, maybe, yeah, you could have a marriage like this, or you could bring up your kids like this, or you could do housework like this, or... um, you know, you're, you're always... So you don't think that the the way of life you have or the culture you live in is like the only way or the, mm-hmm. the correct way, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. The God-given way or the, mm-hmm. you know, the rational yeah. only way. The correct way. Yeah. yeah. And it's... it. You know, anyone who's read Peter Berger, The Sacred Canopy, I mean, and, and understood what he's saying... Uh, you know, you start seeing culture in a new way as something that's constantly being built and rebuilt and torn down and, and you know, tried out and changing. So, you know, you don't get upset when someone has a completely different idea of the world than you do or totally mm-hmm. different values or, or, say, different ideas on sexuality and, and diet and child-rearing. And, I mean, so long as they're not, like, harming someone. Yeah. Um, but then but, the idea of harming somebody is can be part of that discourse yeah, as well, of course. That's true. Yeah. But it, it is true. Like, even my most intelligent, sophisticated friends, they'll sometimes get quite upset by some of the groups I'm studying, or mm-hmm. they'll get put off by people who, who drop in to visit me who work from the cults, you know. And it's just because they're alien and it sort of threatens their, their, their worldview, as far as I can see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What I'd like to end on, and I, I'm not sure if this is going to be a question or just me telling you what I think, but hopefully you'll have something to to um, to add. The work, the kind of work that you've done, and, and others, Eileen Barker and, and, and many others, but it, it, it's tied to a cult, sect, religion, new religions, movements kind of idea of religion. What I think would be really exciting is to unpack some of the kind of things we've gone through today, where you know we say, well, actually, this stuff's not so intrinsically. You know, there's no philosophical reason that this is any weirder than anything else. It's just we're just talking about numbers, right? We're just talking about how you mm-hmm. used to. You. I would like to see that kind of approach applied to the mainstream religions, and find some way of talking about all of this stuff without recourse to talking about minority religions. Because a minority, what's a minority? Just 
you as know, people. It's just numbers, or or not even sometimes minorities can you know like the the poor, for instance, there's more of them than than there are of the rich. You know? mm-hmm. um, and just finding a way of talking about all of this stuff without talking about, you know, real religions and new or alternative or minority or any of these pejorative mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. terms which belong to some particular form of 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 uh, dividing the populace up in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that your work, particularly, but also that of other people, has humanised that and made that possible. Do you, have you any ideas about how we can, you know, take that and move that forward? Um, I think it would be good to have um, stories about new religions. I think study, studying new religions, researching new religions, is for me is a great source of fascinating stories. I'm always coming up with yeah. fascinating stories. Yeah. And it would be great to have a TV, like, series... <laughs> Or, I mean, I'm writing a murder mystery now that's um, set in a new religious movement. Oh, nice. And um, so to have more literature and popular culture looking at really unconventional religions Mm -hmm. and addressing some of these whole issues like the brainwashing issue, deprogramming, how the law treats, like polygamy, for example, um, why people join, why people leave... Mm -hmm. Um, charismatic authority you know, all these fascinating topics fascinating issues mm-hmm. and alternative medicine at what point it becomes medical neglect right and there's, there's so many wonderful um, themes and, and stories that could be part of a TV series so <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the answer I was or, expecting or but it's a cute answer <laughs> But that would educate the public, well, it would, yeah. I think, and give it them would. more insight into, you know, or interest in. Yeah, because, you know, I'm like you, I, I got into this because the stories were better. That's why. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Shall we end there, then? We've kind of come full circle. Yes, well, thank you, David. That uh, was really fun. No, thank you. Too. Thanks for, uh, for taking the time on this ridiculously hot day. Thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much for that, David. Um, I know that the, the law and its interaction with that constructed category, religion, um, has been a, a topic that's come up quite a lot in my tutorials this year, particularly Sharia law, if indeed that, that is a mm. thing, and, and how that might interact with our Western, secular, Christian, post-Christian law. Um, Absolutely. But of course, when, when you're talking about the law and new religions, there's a whole mm-hmm. further level of complexity in which we're taking part in what uh, Tim Fitzgerald calls the discourse on civility and barbarity. So whilst something like Shaira law, we're talking about, um, you know, what everyone would admit is a legitimate religion mm-hmm. When we start talking about new religions, then we're talking about what weird, deviant cults get up to. And, but as long as it's kind of Christian-like, and as long as people claim some form of sincerity, then we tend to think, okay, yeah, yeah, we can maybe give you some legal legal rights there. Uh, yeah, as long as they're not doing anything weird, like, you know, being naked or, you know, having oh. crosses upside down. Oh, no, you know. I couldn't have that. Um, indeed, you know, part of what came up in the conversation, actually, these uh, accusations of legal deviance and kind of theological deviance often go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's 
you know, very interesting uh, interview for Absolutely. me. Absolutely. So thank you. We're already at that time of year when um, our holiday special our final podcast of 2015 well, we are yes it's um, coming up next we've had week. a real run now of of ihr interviews is is this our final recording from ihr is there more to come this is our final recording from I th- ihr i think so well me well there might be one further but we'll leave that um uh, but yes, if you were at our Christmas special, then you will be aware of uh, what a, an event it was. Um, we didn't have the audience that we could have because it was put together at the last minute, but we had a great audience that was there, as you'll hear, and uh, we're going to have a bigger audience for it now, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll leave the specifics for you to, uh, to hear next week, uh, but it's quite a stellar cast of uh, contestants. Um, it's a great evening. And um, hopefully we'll get some of um, Anya Pogacnik took some rather excellent photos of the event as well. So we'll, we'll try and get them up at the at the same time. Yes, we will. We'll we'll have a gallery of those because she she did a stellar job, and I want to show them off. Um, so come back next week for our insert religious festival special of for 2015, 14 to one. Thanks for listening.